This is Jay, and welcome to Potstirer Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide, and it's not always polite. The following episode was originally a Patreon bonus episode released in January 2020. I'm releasing it today as part of Black History Month. This is the story of a group of Black student-athletes at the University of Wyoming during the late 1960s. Fourteen students on the school's football team who asserted themselves and sought to preserve their dignity in a time and place where that was not acceptable. While this series of events occurred over a half-century ago, the issues surrounding race, sports, and social justice are still applicable today. There's a lot we can learn from the courage and sacrifice of these men. Check out the episode entitled The Black 14, starting right now. As someone born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, a couple of my favorite sports teams are Detroit teams. When I was a teenager, I was absolutely obsessed with hockey. A friend invited me to a minor league hockey game when I was around 12 or 13, and at that point, I was hooked. While other teen girls at my school were into boy bands, R&B singers, and actors, my crushes were hockey players. And not only that, the fast-paced and hard-hitting nature of the sport was exciting. I not only had posters with the likes of Steve Eiserman and Pavel Bure, I kept track of the statistics of NHL teams and their players. My favorite hockey team was, of course, the Detroit Red Wings and I got into them prior to them winning those Stanley Cups, back when locals dubbed them the Dead Wings. Speaking of mediocrity, I've also been a fan of the Detroit Lions. I never got obsessed with football in the same way as I once was with hockey, but on Sundays in the fall, my dad and I would watch the Lions on TV. This was during the Barry Sanders age. He was amazing and cut through defenses like butter even with having a terrible offensive line for much of the time he played. To this day, I stand by my take that Barry Sanders was the best running back of all time. All time. The Lions have never won the Super Bowl, and their last championship was won back in the 1950s. But the thing to understand about native Detroiters is that we are people whose city has been through a lot, but we have hope in the better days ahead. And that is reflected in the Lions fandom. Yet, as much as I enjoy seeing the Lions play, I haven't watched the NFL or purchased anything related to the league or my team in quite some time. You may be able to guess why, but in case it's hard to figure out, it's because of the NFL's choice to essentially blackball former San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick for kneeling during the national anthem in protest of police brutality against black Americans. Some want to give NFL owners the benefit of the doubt and say that, well, Kaepernick is a running quarterback, or Kaepernick wasn't that good. Kaepernick was good enough that at one time he got his team to the Super Bowl, and while pocket-passing quarterbacks are the majority in the league, Kaepernick is not the only running quarterback. There have been much less talented quarterbacks that have been signed to contracts since Kaepernick's last NFL contract ended. In 2019, for example, the Lions have employed 10 quarterbacks on their roster due to injuries, many of them 
do not have anywhere near the resume or talent of Colin Kaepernick. Then there are those who claim that Kaepernick isn't being signed due to being a distraction. His former coach, Chip Kelly, a Caucasian coach who has not been a stranger to racially charged controversy during his career, has even stated that Kaepernick was not a distraction when he played. Also, there have been a number of players who have committed actual crimes, domestic violence, animal abuse, etc. that get signed. Michael Vick, who was a running quarterback by the way, infamously ran a dogfighting ring and literally went to prison. Once he was out of prison, he got re-signed to play in the NFL. Colin Kaepernick's protest was reframed by Donald Trump, Mike Pence, and many, mostly white conservatives and moderates, as anti-American and anti-military, when the fact was that it was neither. Kaepernick choosing to kneel was at the suggestion of members of the military and was not due to anti-American nor anti-military sentiment. It was simply to protest police brutality. And with Trump weighing in on the protests negatively as they spread, the NFL has chosen to deal with the problem by unofficially banning Kaepernick from the league. The NFL is a private business and the First Amendment does not apply to businesses. So in our hyper-capitalist society, they can do what they want. But just like they can choose to keep Kaepernick out of the league, I can choose not to support them. Do I think I'm going to make any difference? Nope. But that's not the point. I'm not going to willingly spend my money supporting a non-essential company that behaves as if coddling the president and closed-minded fans is more important than life, including my life and the lives of people I care about. The story of Colin Kaepernick is not unique in American history. Muhammad Ali was kept out of boxing for three years for refusing to fight in the Vietnam War in 1966. Track medalists John Carlos and Tommy Smith were kicked out of the Olympics after they gave the Black Power salute during the 1968 Summer Olympics in Mexico City in protest of the unequal treatment of black people back at home. For the powers that be, it's okay for black people to put our bodies on the line to entertain, but it's not okay for black people to advocate for ourselves and our community. What has consistently drawn the ire of the sports establishment is protest by black Americans against their own oppression. While these stories are fairly well known, I recently came across a not so famous, but still striking story about a group of college football players in the 1960s who found themselves up against the same establishment. This month's Patreon bonus episode is the story of the black American players from 1969's University of Wyoming Cowboys football team, also known as the Black 14. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. Welcome to Potstirer Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide, and it's not always polite. In the 1960s, the civil rights movement was in full swing, as Black Americans, as well as non-Black allies, were fighting for the rights of Black Americans to be treated as equals, with the right to integrate into a country that once held their ancestors as slaves and continued to view them as inferior people. The previous decade 
the Brown versus Board of Education decision by the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that separate was inherently unequal and that public schools must desegregate. Then, in the 1960s, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed by Congress and signed into law by President Lyndon B. Johnson, which ended racial segregation in public places and prohibited employment discrimination on the base of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. The next year, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was made law, which prohibited voting discrimination and was designed to make sure that states that had instituted methods to keep Black Americans from voting would be held accountable by the federal government. But despite these laws being passed, Black people in America continued to fight de facto segregation or segregation by custom. By 1969, the civil rights movement had lost some major civil rights leaders, such as Malcolm X, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and many others. But there were still groups fighting for civil rights. And one of those battlegrounds was in the nation's colleges and universities. The civil rights movement was slow to come to Americans' Mountain West region, a part of the country that had a very small population of Black Americans. But it was there, and it would soon unfold in a major way. The University of Wyoming Cowboys football team was a juggernaut. From 1958 through 1961, Wyoming earned four straight Mountain States Conference titles under head coach Bob Devaney. During this time, the Cowboys began adding Black players to the team, which helped keep them dominant. After Devaney left the school to take a position at University of Nebraska, assistant coach Lloyd Eaton was promoted to the head coaching role. At the same time, Wyoming moved over to the Western Athletic Conference. Throughout the 1960s, Wyoming was particularly victorious, especially finding success in the latter half of the decade with three straight conference championships from 1966 through 1968. And in the fall of 1969, the future looked very bright for the Cowboys and their integrated squad. But having a racially integrated football team in the 1960s had its difficulties. In 1967, Melvin Hamilton, one of the Cowboys players, was dating a woman on campus and the couple wanted to marry. Typically, when players wanted to get married, the football program would help them with housing and financial assistance. But when Hamilton reached out to Coach Eaton, he had a different reaction. Since Hamilton was black and his fiance was white, Eaton said, quote, I can't let you marry a white girl on the people of Wyoming's land, end quote, and that if Eaton allowed it, he would be run out of town. So Hamilton quit the team and left for the army before returning two years later. Then in 1968, the Cowboys played Brigham Young University. Now, here's some important context. Brigham Young University, or BYU, is a school run by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, known as the LDS or the Mormons. The LDS is a uniquely American sect of Christianity started by Joseph Smith in 1830, and among other things, believes that Jesus Christ came to North America in what is now the United States. Under the leadership of Brigham Young, black males were prohibited from holding priesthood in the LDS church. In Mormonism, 
The priesthood is a rite of passage that men of the faith undergo from around the age of 11 and is considered a saving ordinance. So it's not like becoming a priest or pastor in more mainstream Christian traditions. It's more akin to, say, a bar mitzvah in Judaism. The LDS priesthood essentially ushers adolescent boys and men into manhood with the rights, powers, and expectations that come with being a fully-fledged adult male member of the church. So keeping black males from the priesthood was making it clear within the tradition that black people were considered of an inferior station. This likely helped to fuel the virulent racist taunts the black players on the Cowboys experienced from BYB players and fans when playing the Cougars in 1968. Taunts that the officials and coaches, including their own coach, refused to do anything about. This incident led three of the 17 black Cowboys to leave the team after the season ended. In 1969, the University of Wyoming Cowboys included 14 black players on their roster, and like the year before, the team was doing quite well. They had won their first four games of the season, and they were ranked number 16 in the AP NCAA Football Top 25. Lloyd Eaton was looked at as a top coach and was reportedly in the running to join the Big Ten as coach of the University of Wisconsin after the season ended. But the next game of the season for the Cowboys would be against BYU. The University of Wyoming's Black Student Alliance, which was a new student organization on campus at the time, was intending to protest the BYU game. This was planned due to the policies of the LDS Church against Black males holding church priesthood. As part of this, Willie Black, the head of the BSA, approached the Black football players. He wanted them to be involved in the protest and reminded them of how they were demeaned at the BYU game the year before. The players had ultimately decided not to sit out the game, but to wear black armbands over their jerseys in silent protest during the game. But before doing this, they wanted to get permission from Coach Eaton. On the morning of October 17, 1969, the day before the BYU game, the players went to the War Memorial Fieldhouse on campus to see Coach Eaton, wearing the armbands over their street clothes to ask for permission to wear the armbands during the game. Eaton reportedly heard them for just a few minutes. Then, this was the coach's reaction, according to an article in the Denver Post. Quote, He said we could go to Grambling State or Morgan State, defensive end Tony McGee said. We could go back to colored relief. If anyone said anything, he told us to shut up. We were really protesting policies we thought were racist. Maybe we should be protesting there. Added John Griffin, for him to say that we're going back on subsistence programs, that infuriated me, end quote. After Eaton essentially told the players that they should go to historically black colleges and universities or HBCUs and that they would be on welfare if not for him, obviously an appeal to racial stereotypes, he told them, quote, gentlemen, you can save time and breath. As of now, you're off the football team, end quote citing a rule against protests that by all accounts was made up on the spot. Later, he said that seeing them in solidarity angered him and he felt they were being influenced by radical elements 
though this accusation was later dismissed by university president William Carlson. But quickly, the university spun the story to indicate that the players had planned to boycott the game and that they chose to leave the university when that was never their intent. Remember, they had only approached the coach with the request to wear the armbands and were willing to honor his decision either way, not knowing it would cause them to get kicked off the team. The university board of trustees, the university president, and the state's governor, Stanley Hathaway, held a special meeting after the decision was made, spoke with the parties involved, and after all that, decided to back Eaton. Little thought was given to the young men whose futures would be adversely affected. The most public consideration given to the dismissed players at the time from powers that be was an anonymous quote, not even from Wyoming, but BYU, from a source close to their board of trustees who said, quote, it's most disturbing to think that the Negro athletes at Wyoming could lose their education, end quote. The local and national news media got wind of the story, and stories were published in Sports Illustrated and run on the AP wire to papers across the country. There was deep division over the story on the ground. Both the student newspaper and the Denver Post released editorials siding with the students, but the school alumni association as well as local groups came out supporting the coach. Students and faculty were also divided, as well as the student-athletes. Four Black members of Wyoming's track team, including two champions from the year prior, quit the team and left the school in protest. Most of the white football players supported the coach's decision. Tommy Tucker, a white cowboy, claimed that he never heard any racist taunts from BYU and said of the Black Cowboys, quote, They signed on to play football for the university, and it doesn't matter if it's a gay university. I wouldn't demonstrate against them. I came to play football and win football games. If I want to protest, I'll do it on my own time, end quote. Initially, much of the Wyoming fan base backed Eaton as well. The now all-white Cowboys would go on to beat BYU 40-7, then San Jose State 16-7. After winning the BYU game, the fans chanted, We love Eaton! Winning those two games without their black players seemed to be vindication enough for Lloyd Eaton. Eaton was right. We don't need those ungrateful, agitating black players. See, we're winning just fine without them. The problem was, these weren't just a bunch of random guys who were riding the pine until getting kicked off the team. Many of the dismissed players were starters and high performers and were integral to offense, defense, and special teams. So the Cowboys' missing talent would come back to bite them. It also didn't help that the Black 14 controversy and protests would follow them on the road for the last four games, all of which they lost, dropping them out of the AP Top 25. They would end the season 6-4 and four and no longer a championship team. At the behest of the white players, Three of the Black 14, John Griffin, Don Meadows, and Ted Williams, were brought back on the team for the 1970 season, though Williams left before the beginning of play. But the damage had already been done to the Cowboys, and they would end up 1-9 on the season, their first losing season since 1948. It also ended Lloyd Eaton's college coaching career. After the 1970 season, Eaton was forced out, 
later leaving Wyoming for administrative and scouting positions in professional football. Even with Eaton out, Wyoming would find it extremely difficult for decades to recruit black players. They would go on to lose 26 of their next 38 games through 1972 and would only have one winning season in the entire 1970s. While Wyoming's football team was eventually able to rebound, it never quite rose to the dominant force it once was. So what happened to the Black 14? After their dismissal, the players sued the university for breach of their civil rights in the case Williams v. Eaton. The case was heard and eventually dismissed twice by U.S. District Judge Ewing T. Kerr, and the 10th Circuit Court would later affirm. The court affirmed the dismissal on the idea that player protest constituted a disruption, even though the players never said they would boycott the game. But if we look a little deeper, there's a little more to that story. During the time the case was initially being heard, Judge Kerr had been special guest at a banquet held by the Cheyenne Quarterback Club to honor Lloyd Eaton, and would later say, quote, I think the fact that the coach went out and solicited and gave scholarships to a large number of colored people is strong evidence that he was not prejudiced against any race, end quote. Proximity does not make you non-racist. Nevertheless, the fix was in. With the covert support of professors and assistant coaches, the players were able to study through the end of the semester, and most were able to study at other institutions in complete degrees. Besides the three who were invited back to the Cowboys in 1970, three other players, Tony McGee, Jerry Berry, and Ron Hill, transferred to HBCUs. And McGee, as well as Joe Williams, went on to play in the NFL. But out of these 14 black Cowboys, none were able to transfer to major football programs. And while on the whole, most of the men were able to live fulfilling lives, and no, not on welfare, it also derailed most of their chances at successful football careers. Even with the University of Wyoming Cowboys football program and Lloyd Eaton's career having ultimately been destroyed by his decision to kick the Black 14 off the Cowboys, he continued to stand by his actions years later. In an interview in 1982, Eaton was asked if he had any second thoughts. His answer, quote, hell no, not once, end quote. He went on to say, quote, they were biting the hand that feeds them. It was an affront to all of athletics. It was a very easy decision to make, and I'd make it again, end quote. And according to his wife, Dolly, Lloyd Eaton believed in his own racist bullshit up until he died in 2007. But while Eaton himself never learned anything from his downfall, oddly enough, the very school that got Wyoming into the controversy in the first place, BYU, eventually did. The protests of Wyoming's BSA, along with the dismissal of the Black 14, shed a light not only on Wyoming and its players, but on BYU and the LDS policy against Black men holding the priesthood. In 1969, Stanford University announced that it would no longer schedule any athletic contests against BYU. In the next year, so did the University of Washington. In addition, protests were being held at a number of schools BYU played against, protesting anti-Black LDS policies. 
1971, BYU enrolled their first black football player, Benny Smith. Yet their policies on black males in the priesthood were still the same, and the protests continued. If there's one thing to be said for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is that when public opinion flows in a certain direction, the Mormons eventually find themselves following it by divine revelation. This happened when the church walked back their belief in polygamy, and eventually they would walk back their beliefs on race as well. I've discussed the 1970s in previous episodes as a time when the religious right had its start as a reaction to rules in place by the Internal Revenue Service in the wake of the Civil Rights Movement that revoked tax-exempt status from private schools engaged in racial discrimination. This was aimed at segregation academies, racially segregated evangelical schools run by the likes of the late Bob Jones and Jerry Falwell. Brigham Young University did not bar black students from applying to the university, so technically the church rules wouldn't have necessarily led them to lose tax-exempt status, but considering the LDS rules regarding the priesthood, it's not hard to see a potential scenario where BYU's tax-exempt status could be challenged at some point. So the LDS church likely saw the writing on the wall. On June 8, 1978, by divine revelation, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints opened the priesthood to all worthy males regardless of race, lifting the ban on black males in the priesthood. This meant that black men and their families could become fully-fledged adult members of the LDS Church. The church would also retcon the justifications for the previous ban, as if these were never established Mormon doctrines at all. Over the next few decades, while slow compared to many other large college football programs, BYU would recruit and play more and more black players and other players of color. Today, Jaron Hall, whose father was former BYU running back Halen Hall, is BYU's first black starting quarterback. And their head coach, Kalani Sitake, is of Tongan descent. As far as the University of Wyoming is concerned, this year, 50 years after being dismissed from the university, the school decided to formally make amends with the surviving members of the Black 14. Strangely enough, the school wasn't willing to confer honorary degrees, which personally I think they more than deserved. But after negotiating with the living players, the university agreed to extending to the players a formal invitation back to campus along with their families for homecoming, opportunities to speak with students on campus, a historic marker on War Memorial Stadium, letterman's jackets, to be introduced once again as University of Wyoming Cowboys, and a formal apology. The apology letter, read aloud at a dinner held for the Black 14 in September, said, quote, to have your collegiate careers derailed as both students and athletes is a tragedy. Please accept this sincere apology from the University of Wyoming for the unfair way you were treated and for the hardships that treatment created for you. We want to welcome you home as valued members of this institution and hope you accept our old Wyoming saying, once a cowboy, always a cowboy, end quote. Learning about the Black 14, the question I have in my mind is, 
Will it take 50 years for the NFL to apologize to Colin Kaepernick for cutting his career short? Too often, as a society, we look back at those who came before us and what they did when it came to bigotry and civil rights and what they supported. And so often we swear that American society today is so much better and we would do things differently now. Yet our society has the opportunity to do things better today in 2020. And here we are. Who we would have been 50 years ago is who we are right now. The story of the Black 14 is one in a long line of stories of Black Americans who have been valued for their athletic prowess, but shunned and cast out for using their incredible talents and hard work to improve the lives of their families and communities. It's the mentality that these men are given an opportunity they're throwing away over politics, but one person's politics is another person's real life. And while it is incredibly difficult to make it as a starter in a major college football program, and even more so to make it to the pros, that doesn't mean that the players haven't earned those positions. Many of them have immense talent honed by amazing dedication and a lot of discipline. It's not something that most of us would have the opportunity to do, not simply because we're not at the right place at the right time, but because most of us don't have the talent or the dedication. We also have to remember that football in particular is an extremely physical sport and players are often subject to injuries, including concussions. Players are putting their bodies on the line for entertainment. And whether they get multi-million dollar contracts or not, often pay for the few years of athletic success with the rest of their lives. The idea that because they have the opportunity means they should just shut up and play, especially when we don't like what they have to say, is the height of paternalism, entitlement, and privilege. If these players are good enough to entertain us, we should be grateful enough to care about their real lives. Thank you very much for listening to this bonus episode of Poster Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Prime, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's more where that came from. And if you really enjoy the show, please give it five stars and leave a review on your favorite podcast app. The reason I ask is to increase visibility so more people can enjoy it. Check out potstirpodcast.com for all episodes, merch, and more. And I tweet a lot and I enjoy hearing from you. So follow me on Twitter at potstirpodcast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free. Free.